You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. And we're looking together at chapter 1. And you'll find this on page 774 of the Pew Bible. Page 774 of the Pew Bible, we're reading together verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now Jonah served as a prophet in the midst of a faithless and disobedient people. We learned this last time. And we discovered together that under King Jeroboam II, Israel had gone apostate. This ungodly, idolatrous king did not depart from the sins of his forefathers. And although his reign was long, 41 years, it was neither righteous nor was it godly. Israel's people were unfaithful. Her leaders were untrue. Her future was uncertain. And yet God had been patient and long-suffering with his people and delaying judgment, the judgment that they deserved. And his same gracious character would be evident in Jonah's ministry to Nineveh, which would be a problem. So he was commissioned to preach against the city's exceedingly great wickedness, and Nineveh was situated on the eastern bank of the great Tigris River. It was more than 500 miles from Palestine, a long way to travel on foot. (laughs) Today, its ruins lie opposite the modern city of Mosul in northern Iraq. And in the text, Nineveh is described as that great city. And great it was. During the reign of Sennacherib, he fortified it and made it the capital city of Assyria. And we're told in chapter 4 that it contained 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left. The inability to distinguish between right and left is a sign of mental immaturity. These are infants and they're toddlers, in other words, who can't discern and have not yet the full use of their reason. That's how many toddlers were in Nineveh. In Deuteronomy 1, it says, As for your little ones who have no knowledge of good or evil, same kind of thing. These are young children, infants and toddlers. And demographers say that young children typically make up about a fifth of the population. Well, if that is true, then Nineveh's population would have been no less than 600,000 people. Some say more. And by the standards of that period, this would have been a very large number. To accommodate that many people, the city had to have been a vast expanse. 
They didn't have high-rise apartments to provide housing for that kind of people. And moreover, they needed pasturages to provide for what it says, much cattle, all kinds of herds. So it says here in verse 3 that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So assuming a day's journey is about 17 miles, Nineveh's approximately 50 miles wide. That's how big this place was. And Jonah is called to prophesy in a great city of truly gigantic proportions. And most likely this description incorporated several neighboring cities. Moses, for example, calls the combination of Nineveh and three others the great city in Genesis 10. We do this, don't we? How often have you heard, oh, I'm from the greater Cleveland region. I don't live in Cleveland, but it's the huge region that we're talking about. So in the same way, Jonah was to minister in the greater Nineveh area. And the important point is that Jonah was called to prophesy to a very large metropolitan city. It was great in size, great in number, great in wealth and power and dominion. And yet even in this great city, it was under the sovereign government of the Lord. And I think it is fascinating how the great city of Nineveh is actually described with amazing brevity. The whole thing is characterized as thoroughly evil. There's no superfluous verbiage, no detailed description of their wickedness. The Lord God simply declares their evil has come up before me. And we can't allow the terseness of this description to fool us. Just because it's brief doesn't mean that Nineveh's evil is relatively slight. She was thoroughly evil. The epitome of human pride and self-exaltation. And there she sat in the fatal darkness of her unbelief and idolatry, a great city filled with many sinners sinning and making others sin. They were sinning with a high hand, as the Old Testament would put it, proudly and presumptuously. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, she was utterly wicked and deserving of judgment. And though her particular sins are not detailed in Scripture, history tells us that this city was widely known as the center of the fertility cult. They were also renowned for their cruelty to the prisoners of war. They were idolatrous, sensual, brutal, given over to all kinds of sin and vice. And when God says their evil has come up before me, it means before my face. That's what the translation means. The Hebrew idiom suggests that the Ninevites were defying God to his very face. Does it not underscore the blatant and willful and rebellious nature of iniquity? Before God's eyes, as it were, they were serving the devil's cause. As Frank Page puts it, many people ignored God and assumed that he also ignores them. This text portrays God as one who notices, as a God who is active, and as a God who takes sin seriously. So Jonah was commissioned to call out against the great city of Nineveh. And this is legal language. It's the terminology of God's deputy prosecutor. That's what's going on here. Jonah's task as the prosecutor is to expose their guilt 
make known his judgment and call them to repentance. And it was that last feature, calling them to repentance, that Jonah found so offensive. Exposing their guilt's no big deal. Calling down judgment upon them was easy. But what? Allow them to repent? Extend mercy to such wicked pagans? This would be the most difficult and faith-testing experience of Jonah's life. And I think the first thing to consider here is that Jonah received a royal commission. In other words, this is the command of God, the Most High over all the earth. I think it's easy to pass over that. He is the king who speaks as the almighty sovereign who reigns supreme. And notice here he doesn't justify his actions. There's no explanation. There is no other information. Jonah sees no vision. He's given this simple, terse, abrupt command. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Our English words, arise, go, lends to the commission a sense of urgency. It's as if the Lord was saying, go at once, now. Traveling orders are given, the destination is Nineveh. So from the start, God was working with Jonah in such a way as to test his faith. After all, this is so unlike the sensational commissions of other prophets. You remember Isaiah? He received his commission in the form of this glorious vision of the Lord sitting on his throne. He was high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the heavens. And it goes on. Above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one calls out to another and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What a commission. Jonah received no such vision, no throne, no angels, no seraphic chorus. Or think of Jeremiah, commissioned through a privileged conference with the Father. It was deeply profound and greatly encouraging to the young prophet. It says in verse 5 of Jeremiah 1, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. How reassuring was that to this young prophet called to a very difficult ministry. And yet in Jonah's case... No such conference, no detailed encouragement. The Bible says there was nothing but this sudden, terse command, seemingly without notice. Jonah was given his marching orders, like a great cosmic general, God issuing a command to a subordinate officer. With brevity and haste, go. And so it seems clear to me that not just Nineveh, but Jonah would be tested in this whole affair. His faith would be tried, and this would be an unprecedented prophetic mission. No other Jewish prophet was ever called to preach repentance to a heathen nation. It went against all Jewish expectations. Nothing like it had ever occurred. 
And yet, without the slightest bit of explanation, God calls Jonah to this work. No discussion, no preparation, no caveats. God just told him to do it. And in this, Jonah's faith was being tested. Would he submit to God's authority? It's reminiscent, I believe, of the unexplained command in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why? You said I could eat of every tree of the garden. What's wrong with this one? As a matter of fact, it looks very delicious. I'd like to eat of that tree. And the only answer that's implied in Genesis 2 is the sovereign prerogative of God. Adam must submit to his word based solely upon divine authority, which is something our modern culture does not like to hear. No hesitation, without question, without complaint, that prohibition tested Adam's faith as this commission tested Jonah's. Would the prophet obey God simply on the basis of his divine authority? And I ask you, what else do we need besides God's command? If the Lord says it, we're to do it. This is the love of God, says John, that we keep his commandments. It's the same type of test through, with, through which Abraham had to pass. Here goes God again. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. No explanation. No warning, no discussion, go sacrifice your son. And Moses even prefaced the story by saying, God tested Abraham. And scripture says that Abraham responded to this by obeying without hesitation. He rose early in the morning, he saddled his donkey, he gathered his servants, he cut the wood, he laid it on Isaac's shoulders and went to the mountain. No questions asked. No wavering, no complaints. It says he simply obeyed. And when Christ prevented him from slaying Isaac, it foreshadowed the cross. Abraham received his son back from the dead, as it were, just in the nick of time. The ram caught in the thicket. Do you remember the story? Christ says, don't do that. And there's a ram caught in the thicket, which typified Jesus, who died as the believer's substitute. What a marvelous display. But it was a brutal test of Abraham's faith. But a very important one. Because he was able to see from afar the Lord Jesus taking away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus himself says. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So in the same way, God was testing Jonah's faith, and he often tests our faith. In any given circumstance, the question is, will I obey the Lord? Will I trust him? Will I love him enough to take his word as my rule? Let's face it. The infinite God cannot explain everything to weak, finite, limited creatures. We can't even comprehend half the things he says. 
The often the only thing we have to go on is his command. Let me give you an example. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Lord, why would I do that? These people would be glad to kill us. And God says, this is my will. For in so doing, you will dimly exhibit my character. So the Christian prays for those who would kill him if they could. And it's a test of faith, isn't it? Do we believe God? I wrestle with this. I'll be honest with you. Do we love God? Are we willing to submit to God's word? I think we can understand a little bit the utter shock and awe that Jonah felt at the command that he was given. The Ninevites would have no problem stringing him up. They had often used and abused the nation of Israel, and they were enemies. And yet a Jewish prophet has to go and preach so as to give them an opportunity to repent. And Jonah knew that our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He realized that these Ninevites just might repent and be spared. And that's the last thing that he wanted. His vindictive spirit wanted to be satisfied. He was a Jewish patriot called to preach repentance behind enemy lines. And he could not bear the thought of these vile, wicked, pagan Ninevites getting off the hook. He wanted judgment. And I believe that if you and I put ourselves in the seats of those hearing this for the first time, what would we expect? I think those people wondered whether or not Jonah would actually fulfill it. Like Abraham, by faith, he should have obeyed the command that God gave. But like Adam, he refused and rebelled against the divine authority, didn't he? And the Lord has always dealt with his people by testing the sincerity of their faith. Psalm 11 even says, the Lord tests the righteous. And you and I are humans like other people. We have our natural dispositions, don't we? As God spoke to Jonah, so now he speaks to us by his word and spirit. He strengthens our sense of duty or he deepens our conviction of sin, doesn't he? And though trials are endured by everyone, they differ in character and they're proportioned in degree and they help you and I to recognize the nature of our own character. What are we really made of? And these trials prove or disprove the sincerity of our faith. It's the Christian who sees the hand of God in each one of his or her trials, and these help prepare us for a better world without pain or sorrow. That's the promise. So if you're being tested right now, I'm not sure what it is, then in faith embrace his word on his authority. He means good. Let's demonstrate the reality of the new birth by the obedience of faith. Because as Jonah himself will find out, a person can run, but he cannot hide. Let's trust our wise 
loving Heavenly Father and follow his word. So this was a royal commission, but secondly, it was also a righteous commission. He has to call out against that city because their evil has come up before God. In other words, the sins of Nineveh had filled the measure of their wickedness. And apparently until then, their iniquity had not yet reached the brim of the cup. Did you know there's a cup that gets filled up? You remember how God said to Abram in Genesis 15, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete? There's a cup that has to be filled before God's patience runs out. The Amorites had practiced their sin with delight and continuance and impenitence, but their iniquity had not yet reached the measure of its fullness. And in the same way, the Ninevites had practiced their sin and reveled in it, but it had not yet reached fullness. And yet now their cup was full. The sins had come up against the Lord. And the Almighty's arrows of vengeance were aimed and poised to strike them. And as we'll see, the king and all those people realized at once the danger they were in. And it was an amazing demonstration of God's special saving grace in the experience of this nation. The Holy Spirit was at work convicting all the hearts of Nineveh. But what this does is prove that there is a measure of sin to fill before final judgment. God exercises patience, forbearance with families and churches and nations. But the time comes when patience is exhausted and his forbearance is spent and there is a limit to the iniquity God bears with before his patience runs out, as I said. And Nineveh's cup was full. And so now the question was, would the judge of all the earth do right? Their wickedness demanded his action, and he had prepared Nineveh accordingly. The judge dispatched the prosecutor to indict them. He had suffered long, but now it was time to deal with their guilt. So Jonah is being sent, as I said, to Nineveh as the herald of divine justice and mercy. He's to go in the king's name with the king's authority to proclaim the king's message. It was a message of righteousness. They had trampled morality underfoot. They defaced an already sinful image. So it was a royal commission. It was a righteous commission. And finally, it was a remarkable commission. Obviously, as we've said, Nineveh's wickedness had reached enormous proportions, and all of it was done in God's face, presumptuous, willful, deliberate, And yet God not only gives them a warning, but he issues this call of repentance. So Jonah's commission implied the very real possibility of divine mercy. And isn't that remarkable? The judge ready to condemn and yet willing to forgive? He could have destroyed them justly, wiped them out in an instant. Doesn't it give a small glimpse into God's sovereign, surprising divine grace? Was this not one of the reasons, if not the reason, for Jonah's rebellion? He knew God is gracious. He knew that God is merciful. He didn't want Nineveh to be spared. They were sworn enemies. 
And I believe he was an earlier counterpart to the elder brother in Jesus's parable. Do you remember that parable? The prodigal son. When the prodigal returned, that elder brother incensed that the father celebrated. He was vindictive. He wanted to see his younger brother punished. And the fact is, you and I are like that by nature, aren't we? Cruel, unforgiving, vengeful. You parents know how this becomes evident in children and the way they delight in the trouble of their siblings. Don't you see it? If brother or sister is chastised, oh, they take peculiar interest and pleasure. By nature, human beings are spiteful, resentful, bitter, and unforgiving. But God is not. He is far more merciful and far more gracious than you and I can even imagine. And with infinite wisdom, he preserves and governs this fallen world. He's a God of providence who is infinitely above us and his secrets far beyond us. And Isaiah applies that principle that his wisdom is infinite in a very special way to the plan of salvation. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. So that as his providence is beyond our reckoning and comprehension, so is his plan of salvation infinitely above our capacity to think or imagine. In the parable of the prodigal son, the Lord Jesus aimed at teaching that very point. The younger son was selfish, profligate, and an ingrate who deserved punishment. But when he returned, the father ran to him and embraced him with kisses. And God often saves the most unlikely sinners, doesn't he? People guilty of horrid crimes. Criminals that you and I would write off without hesitation. God saves by grace. Paul is a perfect example. Blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. And so Nineveh will be spared because of God's unimaginable mercy and grace. Justice demanded them to be punished. And which one of us, be honest with me now, which one of us would have not taken pleasure in their complete destruction? Murderers, rapists, baby killers. They used to shave the skin off of living prisoners just for fun. They worshiped idols and destroyed villages and killed parents and grandparents. But through Jonah, God warned them. They repented in sackcloth and ashes. And so the God who is rich in mercy offered them a reprieve and they took it. <laughs> and of course, it was the Holy Spirit who enabled them to repent. And all of this shows simply the incomparable and unimaginable grace of God. And this is entirely consistent with the full satisfaction of his justice, because as Paul tells us, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What was a debt to Christ is grace to us. He suffered and we're forgiven. 
How reasonable is it then that we embrace the hard terms of obedience to Jesus when he complied with the much harder terms of our salvation? My dear friends, let's rejoice and give thanks for so great a salvation because we're just like those Ninevites. You've heard of the future state in heaven. You've tasted its joys at times by faith in public worship. And yet all that you've heard and all that you've tasted falls so far short that heaven, when you get there, is going to be a surprise. (laughs) Surprising how marvelous it is. The highest, most intense pleasures on this earth are but shallows compared to the depths of joy and pleasure that you and I as Christians will experience in the immediate presence of our gracious God. Thank God for Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. We're grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have the promise of eternal life. And we pray now that the Holy Spirit in our midst and in our hearts will enable us to sing praise with joy and thanksgiving. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.